I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello. My name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. What's up, guys? And you're listening to Spaces Podcast Live. Welcome to Spaces. For our returning listeners, thank you for coming back. We are live here at Four Sons Brewing in uh, Huntington Beach. So you'll hear a little bit of noise in the background. We got football games, hockey games, everyone's drinking, having a good time. So uh, we, we have a good episode set up for you. Uh, we'll have the, the owner come in and, and sit down for a little interview. And we're going to discuss breweries the evolution of the industry, um, speak with our hosts about design and construction considerations uh, when you're building a brewery, and kind of the business and, and future of breweries. Oh, and we're going to do a little bit of a, a beer tasting at the end with uh, some trivia. So get your thinking caps on, guys. At the end, we're already doing a beer tasting. I don't ever have my thinking cap on. <laughs> I've got five different beers in front of me. <laughs> Slow down. I hope you got a driver. Uh, okay, so today we, uh, we want to start off. This is our one-year anniversary, guys, to the date. 1217, we launched last year. Uh, so it's been a year. I wanted to, to check in with you guys, see how, how if you were to look back on the year, what would you what would your reflection be on a year of doing this podcast? I can't believe I'm doing this. Does that count? Um, I think about a year ago, I probably never would have expected to be involved in something like this. To okay. be honest with you, yeah, um, it's been pretty cool. 
yeah. had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, and I think it goes without saying a lot of props got to go to you. I know we keep, you know, we've said it multiple times in the past, but you put a lot of work into this. So um, it's pretty cool just to be able to show up, literally sit down, and, and you basically tell us what to do and just to talk, which is, you know, primarily what I'm good at, not setting things up, just coming in and talking. So um, it's been pretty unreal. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> Michelle. I agree. A year ago, I would not have thought that I'd be here. Um, I remember looking at Allie, and Allie, who was a friend of mine, was uh, doing this with both of you, and I thought that was really cool. Uh, so for the opportunity for me to step in was really, really neat. So I'm going to go a little bit deeper. And when I, doing the research for this, this uh, you know, each one of our topics, I kind of, came across this underlying thing that I noticed is, you know, in, in our country, in the United States, nothing ever really happens without two things, effective marketing and government backing. And looking at, you know, how all of our spaces have, have evolved over time, those are the two common threads that I've seen the entire time. And when you think about, you know, nowadays, the, the advancement of technology this is the first time in history that the masses have sort of overpowered those at the top to an extent. Um, the, the, the amount of information that's out there and the way that people share information, you can sway a vote really easily nowadays. And when you think about that in, in specifics to the spaces that we occupy, it's really important to you know, voice your opinion when it comes to spaces like schools, hospitals, housing, um, homelessness there's so much that we can address and and with the power that we have with social media and just email um, there's a lot that can be done so uh, kind of looking back on this year and all the different places uh, spaces that we've studied and, and kind of discussed that's one of the, the common threads that, that jumped out to me so with looking back over our last year I wanted to ask you guys, Jason, Michelle, let's start with Jason. What was your favorite episode that we've done this year? I think I like the discussion on tiny houses. Really? Yeah, which is kind of funny because I can't stand tiny houses. I know, <laughs> I know that happened in the same episode as well, but... Yeah, you made the, uh, our guests a little uncomfortable, I think. Yeah, that, you know, that's what I'm good at. But, the, <laughs> but for the most part, it's because we were watching so many shows and even my kids were involved in it yeah. and really looking at things and honestly all we were doing was knocking on them but it was interesting to get his perspective on the whole build and the whole idea behind it Yeah. and having you know discussing it with somebody that was actually living with it was a totally different scenario than just any misconceptions or conceptions that we had prior you know yeah. my family and stuff like that so I thought that was kind of interesting ultimately too you know, as part of an economic forecaster recently where <clears throat> they were talking about housing's getting just smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, ultimately, it's not going to, towards tiny housing, yeah. but just the fact that square footage continues to diminish. Yeah. So I think it's actually a really relevant conversation about, you know, how efficient can you make spaces and do those types of things. So, um, and I thought actually he was just a really good uh, personality to have on with us as well. Yeah. I think he was in his closet. Right? Was he in the closet? Something <laughs> yeah. like that? Yeah, he was literally. And he recently got engaged. Did yeah. you see that? Yeah, I saw so that. So, Richardson, right? Davis Richardson. Yeah. So, congratulations, buddy. You're screwed. Um, but, uh, no, that was super cool. Um, so, I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah. No. So, I'm going to jump in because I second that. That was my. Sucker. <laughs> and I can't think of another one fast enough. 
but I will make an honor, honorable mention for the other ones that, that were my favorite, um, were the Haunted Spaces, the graffiti episode, and then the airports that we just recently did. And those, because selfishly, I think I kind of hit a groove production-wise, so I'm patting myself on the back on that one. So it's like behind-the-scenes stuff, more so you're fired up? Yeah, yeah, and it was a lot of fun. So, Michelle? Clearly, my favorite episode was The New Girl. <laughs> was that because you offed Allie or because you came in? Which one? Because I came in. The whole episode was about me. Why would that not be my favorite episode? <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, we're being real. Uh, my favorite episode actually was airports. Um, and I think it was probably obvious with my passion for travel. And I had just come off of a really awesome trip with my family to Thailand. You were so giddy during that I episode. I was giddy. I was really giddy. And Jason missed out. He wasn't on that, uh, he wasn't on that recording. But, you know, hearing the background from Ben about all of the considerations that go into designing and um, you know all the considerations related to airports was really really fascinating and it actually that episode forced well not forced but caused me to actually go and do additional research on just all of the things that happened behind the scenes I was so fascinated by it yeah so um, so on that note I want to do a quick little game we got two representatives or, or you guys will be the representatives for two guests that are here in in the uh, in our makeshift studio for today. Can I pick the guy that looks like Jake Gyllenhaal? That guy right there. <laughs> Doesn't he kind of look like Jake Gyllenhaal? You have I, to say yes because we're live at this point. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Michael and Olivia, uh, they are going to be uh, the recipients of the gift. Uh, do, do you guys have a preference who? represents you. Michael? No? Olivia? Okay, we'll just pair you up by sex. Wait, so, who's Olivia? Right okay. there. Okay, so Michelle, you're gonna represent Olivia. No, that's ridiculous. She can represent Jake. I'll represent Olivia. Let's just flip it. Okay, we'll flip it then. <laughs> so I'm Jake and you're you Olivia. put on your male brain, I'll put on my female Easy. Brain. Done. Okay. Okay. So I'm putting you guys on the spot. I don't like being put on the spot. See if you've been paying attention. What has been the best performing episode that we've done so far? Tiny houses. A, hold on, you got options. A, tiny homes. B, uh, maiden voyage, our first one. C, smart cities. Or D, home renovations. Tiny homes. No, I'm going to go with smart cities. Jason. <laughs> that was before your time, so you, you didn't know that. He was a wild guest. It's my female brain. All right, keep going. <laughs> All right, uh, one more. What has been the worst performing episode so far? The new girl. <laughs> Ouch. Rude. Amusement parks. Amusement parks. Hospitals. Prisons or skyscrapers? Oh, damn, it's not even in there. Prisons. Yeah, I was going to go with prisons, unfortunately. Oh, neither of you got it, so Jason wins. The right answer was hospitals. Nobody's interested in hospitals. Nobody wants to go to the hospital. Think about it. I guess. You sure New Girl wasn't in the running somewhere? 
No. <laughs> All right. So, uh, as a nice try, Jason. So, if I didn't mention it already, uh, one of the things that we're doing for today as well. Wait, hold on. What did Olivia win? Oh, uh, Olivia won a Spaces podcast shirt. So we'll get we'll get your size and uh, get that over to you. Clearly, it's a small, right, Olivia? Has to be a small. <laughs> Yeah, always a small. So we'll get that over to you at our break. Um, so again, today we are doing um, we, in conjunction with our live event, we're raising money for a homemade. Um, so we want to touch on that a little bit before we get started in our discussion. Um, homemade is a for those that may not know, homemade is a national nonprofit organization that builds new lives for homeless families and individuals through housing and community outreach. With the purpose to end homelessness, Homemade focuses on three areas of advocacy, development and service. Today we have a representative from Homemade to discuss a little bit more about it. He's a project manager for Homemade Orange County, Evan Miles. Evan, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me today. Evan, uh, and then I wanted to mention, you guys are helping us out by selling raffle tickets today uh, to, to raise some money, and those will be $5 per ticket, right? Yep, that's right. Uh, and who's, where are those tickets? Where can we get those? If you want to get the tickets, just come over to the table at the entry to the, to the uh, Four Sons, and uh, Daniel will help you get into the raffle. There are some valuable prizes here. Daniel's a hockey guy. He's a good guy. <laughs> so, Don't miss out. Everyone wants a raffle ticket. So for those present, uh, please stop by, see Daniel, and get some tickets. So Evan, uh, anything I missed? Do you want to go into a little bit of your background and, and talk a little bit about Homemate? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be really pleased to talk about that. You know, the thing that I find is amazing is um, how human homelessness truly is. So for me personally, I... I came from a space where I grew up in Orange County, kind of a local person. I had a connection with family that did construction, which is very tied in with what Homemade does. We build the doorways that get people from hopelessness and despair into a place where their life transforms. Um, so essentially, uh, I started from a place where I, I I had like a, a transformative moment in my life, like kind of a, a spiritual awakening, so to speak. I'm not going to detail about that, but um, I, I came into a space where I got to meet people who were homeless, serve them, spend time with them, and have that face-to-face -face interaction, right? Yeah. And then I got to, over time, uh, my wife got out of college ends up running straight out of college a shelter for 21 people who've been homeless who have HIV. It was just totally unexpected. So that's kind of my own personal story. And that shelter, uh, I saw people's lives so radically transformed. One of the stories that I love is a person who, he's about in his 40s, he's given up on life, he's gonna be homeless. And my wife gets to watch him actually get into a place, uh, into that shelter, get a job, get a house, get married at age 40. We got to watch him at a courthouse wedding Right. break down in tears in front of us and that facility that my wife got to run for uh, more than a decade was built by Homemade wow. um, and so what I want to focus on Homemade 
essentially, again, we have the three pillars. We develop shelters that help people. We develop 63 shelters or, or locations in Orange County alone. We're a national organization with 18 chapters. And um, every one of those places is literally saving and changing people's lives. It's a human thing, right? Yeah. And then we do advocacy. We have our director, Scott Larson, actually chairs in Orange County the commission has chaired the Commission on Homelessness and we do service activities. So for example, we like to get involved with the doorways that we've created that are changing people's lives by um, providing we we go to Angel Stadium every year, we raise about a million diapers and wipes. Building industry is deeply involved in that. And that goes to these facilities we've created that are changing people's lives, ending homelessness. We actually get to, to give those diapers to the people still in the, the locations that we've built. Yeah, and I wanted to kind of highlight that a little bit more. Um, for those that may not have heard, it's uh, it's the Builders for Babies uh, event, and a bunch of developers, architects, builders, they collect diapers from, um, you know, they purchase diapers and they have uh, people that step in to donate, and they build uh, little playhouses, essentially, out of these diapers when you can actually walk in and they, they go way yeah. over the... These aren't little playhouses. Some no. of them are like serious structures, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they actually like bring in architects sometimes to design them. So it's a really cool event. Um, and then it's all essentials, diapers, wipes that go to help out families that are uh, in need, right? Yeah, yeah. And we really enjoy that because we get to build these places that are, are helping everyone from a foster youth who has nowhere to go, a project we're working on right now in Fullerton, to you know, a family that's homeless to an individual who's homeless. But the neat thing is that the diaper drive actually allows us to connect with the facilities serving children and families that are homeless by giving them, a, we actually bring it to the shelters and directly give it to homeless babies. And yeah. it's just really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And Evan, um, what was, what's, doing this work, what has been sort of the most complicated part of the process wow. and... Um, you know, going through this whole thing of trying to house people and develop shelters. What, what's, in your mind, one of the most complicated parts of the process? Well, I'd say there's two things. At, at, the, at the macro level, the biggest issue is always the perception and the ability to connect with people, if that makes sense. I actually think the riverbed and some of the stuff that's happened in Orange County, if you follow local politics, has been both good but also challenging for us. And let me explain what I mean by that. So I began to connect with people individually at a soup kitchen and get to know them, get to know their story, right? It breeds compassion. Yeah. Right now, we are needing to work with people to begin to create that personal connection because sometimes people are looking at a person they see who's homeless and they just see an image of them that may not be positive. Does that make sense? Yeah. They're kind of dehumanizing, but they don't know the story behind the story if that makes sense. Yeah. And that, I think, is where when people's hearts are opened and begin to understand what someone's been through that's led them to a street corner, it's, from my wife's experience running a shelter for over a decade, there's always a reason. And when you hear that reason, it makes you want to give, it makes you want to change the world, it makes you want to be the difference for that person. So I, I apologize for rambling a bit, but it's incredible to see that, that change actually happen in our community as a part of my so, Evan, um, what is the one thing listeners can do to help Homemade right now? The bottom line is we're at the end of the year, and it would be wonderful if people would be generous enough to just go to our website, 
www.homeaidhomeaidoc.org. And there's a, donut but, a donate button in the top right corner. Um, that always helps. I mean, it just is that simple. Outside of that, the other thing that you could do, come check out our social media. Find out what's going on in the community. Connect with us and find out where we can help you to become a part of the solution. Thanks, Evan. And then we have, uh, we posted a few donate buttons on our Facebook. Um, so check that out as well. Um, and thanks a lot, Evan. Um, really appreciate you stepping in and kind of manning the, uh, the raffle for us. Oh yeah, it's, it's really a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And so we're gonna take a, a little bit of a break and kind of reset and, and get ready for um, our next, our next uh, interview. So while we are doing our setup, the home listeners can uh, listen to a little bit of history about brewing. And to do that, you gotta go back in time. Before 6000 BCE. Evidence of brewing activity shows beer existed and was made from barley in Sumer and Babylonia. During the Middle Ages, brewing was held as a craft, so much so that by the 16th century, a beer purity law was instituted in Bavaria, and an extensive book on brewing was written in Germany describing in detail about 150 different beers. In the United States, the Dutch actually started the party in 1663 when Peter Stuyvesant granted a patent to Nicholas Farlett for the first brewery in America, which was located in Hoboken, New Jersey. Driven mostly by ale brews, the beer industry began to develop in the United States. In London, catastrophe struck in 1814 at the Horseshoe Brewery. A 22-foot-high wooden fermentation tank containing 3,500 barrels of porter collapsed. Held together by massive iron rings, one of the iron rings snapped. About an hour later, the remaining rings gave way to the pressure, releasing a wave of the hot fermenting ale with a force that knocked down several other vats and collapsed the rear wall of the brewery, resulting in a beer tsunami that flooded the immediate area. The 15-foot-high wave of beer and debris inundated the basement of two homes, causing them to collapse. Nine people were killed in the incident, including one who drank what was assumed drinkable beer and died some days later from alcohol poisoning. This disaster ultimately contributed to the gradual phase-out of wooden fermentation casks to be replaced by lined concrete vats. In the U.S., the Industrial Revolution introduced mechanization to brewing and provided better control over the process. The development of ice making and refrigeration equipment enabled lager beers, previously limited to winter brewing, to be brewed in the summer. The year-round lager brewing enabled a strong introduction to the U.S. market and German immigrants to have a significant impact on the U.S. brewing industry. More than one million German immigrants came to the U.S. in the second half of the 1800s, and they were beer drinkers. The first lager beer brewed in America was by John Wagner, a Bavarian immigrant who set up shop in Philadelphia in 1840. 
Lager popularity quickly exploded within a few years, even shipping beer as far as New Orleans. Many experienced lager brewers gravitated together, creating Philadelphia's brewery town neighborhood. New German immigrants began to look beyond the eastern seaboard, settling in large numbers in Cincinnati, St. Louis, Chicago, and Milwaukee. By 1857, lager was outsailing ale, but the success of this often tight-knit community bred resentment and xenophobia from those whose forebears had arrived in the U.S. in earlier waves of immigration. This resentment would eventually help fuel prohibition. A poem by Ella Wheeler Wilcox, one of 19th century America's most popular poets, hints at the fear many, quote, Native Americans were beginning to have as the influx of German immigrants continued. Their foreign ways became a further source of hysteria, and their lager drinking tradition was directly targeted. In 1855, the Know Nothing Party was successful in getting their anti-immigration, anti-Catholic message across and won elections in cities such as Chicago and Cincinnati. Their platform was able to restrict certain types of alcohol. Aiming to curb German beer drinking culture, the cost of a liquor license was raised by 600%, and politicians revived a law banning beer sales on Sundays. By this point, most of America's largest breweries were owned by families of German descent, and once the U.S. had joined the First World War, it was open season on breweries with German names. A lack of support for prohibition suddenly became unpatriotic, and by 1920, it was the law of the land. German-American brewers may have ruffled feathers for some segments of society, but ultimately, a good drink trumped politics. Some breweries were able to survive the Prohibition era, namely one that ended up under a family name that is one of the most famous in American beer history, Anheuser. Eberhard Anheuser, a St. Louis soap merchant, took control of the Bavarian brewery after its owners defaulted on a loan in 1860 because, well, their beer was terrible. Adolphus Busch, who fell in love with and married Anheuser's daughter, went on to buy a stake in the brewery, become his father-in-law's partner, and tweak the recipe to make a better beer. In the 19th century, brewing was mostly local, since beers that travel long distances would end up spoiling. But Bush responded by pasteurizing his beer, a first for an American brewer. He also built up a system of refrigerated train cars. Suddenly, the idea of a single beer dominating the national market was plausible. In addition, with the knack for capitalizing on pop culture, Budweiser's marketing campaigns drowned out the competition. They even created the 1983 video game Tapper, where the player in the role of a bartender pulled beers for jocks, cowboys, aliens, and more. Their marketing dominance actually began in 1904, before the Clydesdales, Spuds McKenzie, Talking Frogs, and Dilly Dilly, when the company commissioned a German-style drinking song called Under the Anheuser-Busch. The song was recorded by vaudeville star Billy Murray and became a part of the company's marketing for decades. Come and have a sign or two on.
The traditions and styles brought over by immigrants from all over the world were disappearing. Only light lager appeared on shelves and in bars, and imported beer was not a significant player in the marketplace. By the end of the 1970s, the beer industry had consolidated to only 44 brewing companies. Industry experts predicted that soon there would only be five brewing companies in the United States. However, at the same time, armed with only home brewing kits, a grassroots home brewing culture emerged. The home brewing hobby began to thrive because the only way a person in the US could experience the beer traditions and styles of another country was to make the beer themselves. These home brewing roots gave birth to what we now call the craft brewing industry. As the quality of beer from these home brews and small breweries improved over the years, it enabled a wider distribution, establishing popularity and choice. Momentum began to pick up for the microbrewing phenomenon in the early to mid 1990s, with annual volume growth increasing from 35% in 1991 to a high of 58% in 1995. Volume growth fluctuated for some time, but today, craft brewers have reached 12.7% volume of the total U.S. beer market. The retail dollar value from craft brewers was estimated at $26 billion. More than 6,300 U.S. breweries operated for some or all of 2017. The craft beer craze has even reached into architecture with elevated design consideration. To celebrate the collaborative nature of architectural work, Donut Island Brewing and Hisi Brewing Company in Finland have created a limited edition pale ale called Revision Cloud Architectural Pale Ale. In addition to dedicated pubs and restaurant space, this explosive growth has resulted in comparable growth in commercial space being used for brewing, like at the family-owned brewery located in a commercial park in Huntington Beach. Four Sons Brewing. Good to go? Yeah, we're recording. Cool. Like every good tour, we're going to start and end in the gift shop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is... yeah, I'm already purchasing on this. <laughs> this is why we My start here. My best friends are obsessed with beer. It's those babies. Mark Trusolino, sales representative at Four Sons, gave us a tour of the facility. So, the brewery uh, started in uh, Labor Day weekend 2014 uh, by the Dufresne family. Uh, Mom and Dad are the sole uh, presidents of uh, the brewery, uh, and the four sons run everything. We'll talk about them once we kind of get uh, across the other the way. Okay. Opened up this facility. This is Unit 100 uh, in 2014, and after six months of it being slammed every single night, they had to open up. Uh, the, they had to buy next door, which what used to be a CrossFit gym, okay. and so they increased production over there. The regulation and requirements for a craft brewery are often different than those of a larger commercial brewery. The same general building, management, and commercial construction principles apply, but smaller breweries must acutely consider space efficiency, public safety, potential contamination, and product liability. This is unit 200. So after six months of being open, we had to move production over here, or add more production over here. As you can see, those black lights up there, we had tanks, 30 barrel tanks in here, fermentation tanks, 
all those bread tanks, stuff to increase production so we can get our beer outside of awesome. Yep. Yep. Good. Then, after two years, we had to expand it even more and go across the street and move production over there. Okay. So then we turned this into the barrel room. So now we have these 30 barrel, 30 gallon barrels, and we have white wine, red wine, whiskey, uh, bourbon, tequila. We have a hot sauce barrel in here that we age beer in for from six months to three years. Four Sons is a great example of how the home brewing hobby began to thrive because the only way to experience the beer traditions and styles of other countries or styles one wanted was to make the beer themselves. What did this look like? You said it was a CrossFit gym. Yes, and so the, the biggest thing is this walk-in cooler. Okay. That was it. That's the only thing that we had to okay. so uh, the bathrooms put in. were already that, there. The bathrooms were there, and then also installing the bar, which is this yep. piece right there. Because with the walk-in, it's a direct draw system. I'll go in and show you that. And so we didn't have to run any lines from like underneath the floor that a lot of restaurants will do. They'll have a walk-in cooler in the back of a restaurant. And then the beer lines will go underneath the kitchen okay. out to the bar in front of the restaurant. Yep. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So I'll show you guys right now in there. So in here, we keep a lot of our kegs that are gonna be moving over to the tap room, but all these kegs are hooked up directly to that line. And so it just goes straight through there. It's the easiest, it's called a direct draw system, because it's like direct draw from right the keg right here. There's not a long draw. Beer production involves a lot of equipment for the process of malting, milling, mashing, extract separation, hop addition and boiling, removal of hops and precipitates, cooling and aeration, fermentation, separation of yeast from young beer, aging, maturing, and packaging. Our big thing with our brewery, we use real ingredients okay. uh, and no extract. And so using real ingredients all the time, being a small brewery compared to other breweries that use extract, it makes a big difference. So you could tell when that beer tastes syrupy and fake mm -hmm. compared to where you have real blood oranges. Like in our IPA, it brings out that crisp, bright, uh, citrusy flavor mm -hmm. instead of that syrupy flavor. Yeah. So, like I said, this is what most of the public doesn't get to see this kind of stuff. This is, uh, this is another problem that breweries have is space. Each pallet of these empty cans is 8,160 cans. Oh my on here. Say it again. Eight, how many? 8,160 cans per pallet. And then you can count the pallets of beer. Given the success of craft breweries, designs should efficiently locate all pieces of equipment, accommodate the equipment needed to move materials, and consider that success will result in possible expansion of the premises. So yeah, so this is our other space we have. This used to be a Rolls-Royce engine factory. Before we moved in, we put three feet of concrete below us. What? With 28 con cement trucks nonstop for 24 hours to fill this up to be able to support the weight of those tanks. Wow. For earthquake, earth, earthquake. A good choice would be to install pads, piping tie-ins, and future space for electrical equipment to accommodate new units when the load increases. But you can see right here, we're gonna be digging 10 feet underground here to put a silo in here. And so all that grain there will we'll just live in here. Yep, and that way we can get rid of those racks and utilize the space even more. Wow. I don't know. 
let's go see. <laughs> the business of designing a craft brewery is a unique experience. Careful planning and design will reduce many of the potential risks and problems. Site selection and careful evaluation of major utilities are key first steps in a successful design. Lastly, operating systems must be carefully evaluated to ensure that the needs of the brewing process are met while planning for future expansion. Small breweries have been centers of innovation and revitalization of the alcohol industry and their business contributions to the overall economy are significant and invaluable. So grab a pint, but drink responsibly. Cheers. Okay, and we're back. Uh, so again, today we are discussing breweries, um, which have had an interesting kind of history, starting actually from 1642. Uh, brewing in the U.S. Has, has come a long way, actually, and uh, like I kind of mentioned earlier, effective marketing campaigns have actually what changed America's beer preferences over time, um, actually drowning out many of the beer flavors and techniques from around the world for some of those big names like uh, Bud, Bud Light, Budweiser, um, Coors. Like a cuss word around here? Or no? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and it basically shrunk... The, the taste and, and size of brewing, but a grassroots kind of home brewing, home brewing culture emerged over time, and since then it's created this craft brewing industry and uh, a lot of smaller um, mom and pop shops that have popped up, like, like the one that we're here with today, Four Sons Brewing. Um, so we brought in our guests that, that have first-hand knowledge and experience with the business, uh, president of the company. He grew up in uh, New Hampshire and attended the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado. He spent five years as an officer in the Air Force and spent 27 years at Northrop Grun Grumman, where he played a key role in many military aircraft programs, most notably the B-2 Bomber. He holds a B.S. degree in aeronautical engineering as well as an MBA. Retired in 2014 to pursue the awesome opportunity of spending every day with his family. And this is dad of the company, President Duke. And we got one of the sons with us, the oldest son. He is the director of operations, and his title means that he does a little bit of everything, uh, which applies to actually everybody in the family. Uh, using, using his BA degree in communications and, uh, and his MBA, Devin builds relationships with the world-recognized brands, bands, and events to support the growth of the business. He also helps oversee the day-to-day -day operations. And prior, and prior to Four Sons Brewing, he worked. Uh, he also worked at Northrop Grumman on an advanced unmanned aircraft program. So, Devin Duke, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. Uh, so I want to start out, um, is there anything that I missed? I heard you say it's not a great uh, bio. <laughs> I actually haven't read it myself, so it's the first time I'm hearing it. it sounds pretty cool about me. I think well, maybe I wrote that. Yeah, I'm not sure. All I hear is a bunch of smart guys, to be honest with you, so that's pretty good. Yeah, so you guys are all kind of had a, uh, 
uh, aeronautical background, it sounds like, right? Yeah, all our background had nothing to do with beer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was kind of wondering, like, all the stuff you're working on force you to drink a little bit, and that's what happens, that hey, maybe we can do something with this instead, or what? So that, our main qualification to do this was that we all love to drink beer. Makes sense. You know, one of my very best friends, Carl, uh, shout out to Carl, was working for a company called Z Aero. Started his career with Boeing, uh, went to MIT, and does homebrew, is obsessed with beer. I actually am purchasing a shirt for his one-year-old kid that is all about beer from you guys. So there must be a, a combination of aeronautical science, engineering. It's kind of the, the engineering background. Right? really parlays well into the brewing side. There's, you would be astounded how many engineers there are in the brewing world. There's so many owners of breweries that have an engineering background. I, I don't doubt it for one second. So we did, we did a little uh, behind the scenes tour earlier today, um, and it was kind of cool to see some of the contraptions you guys built uh, along the way, the, the labeling machine uh, that you made do by hand, kind of wood-crafted labeling machine, and then the bottling process that you guys work together on so it's very cool to see uh, that engineering side come through mm -hmm. um, so, so was there any uh, anything else you wanted to go into Duke about um, Four Sons as a company uh, that I didn't didn't necessarily touch on well I'm not sure what all Mark told you about our family but yeah it's the six of us my wife and I four sons we're all full-time full-time plus uh, we do a little bit of everything we do the brewing we do the packaging we work in the tap room so pretty much you're gonna run into us almost any time you're here uh, everybody quit their day jobs to do this so we're right on. we're kind of like all in on it so. did, did everybody quit uh, pretty much from the beginning or kind of along the way you all well, started to create yeah the it's interesting because uh, when we started this it was gonna be kind of like a hobby and I was retiring anyway, but I told my kids that if things went well, maybe in you know a few years they'd be able to quit their jobs. And it took about two months, and I, I couldn't cow. we couldn't do it anymore. They all <laughs> it was like you guys got to come help me. So. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Two months. Yeah. The demand was that big, huh? That's yeah. awesome. Because you opened up in 2014, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty quick turnaround in two months to all. Well, to we all. got we got to ask. So when Dad calls and says, "Hey, uh, I think we need some extra help. I need you to quit your day job and come and do this," you're like, "Yeah, okay, sweet." Or you get to drink beer all day for a living. All right, <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> Count me in. <laughs> um, so, so like I mentioned, we we got a little behind the scenes tour earlier. Did you guys have uh, architect, designer, or engineer help with sort of the layout of the space? Um, how to set up the equipment or did you guys just figure it out along the way and space plan yourself? You know, uh, we pretty much figured it out. I mean, we had an architect do the plans, but we are the ones that kind of inch by inch figured out where to put this tank and how to put it, uh, all the support equipment, what's the best kind of arrangement because I think as you can see, from your tour, this business requires a lot of square footage. Yeah, There's a lot of big equipment, a lot of storage. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out the most efficient layout, also the best layout for the process of brewing and packaging yeah. so that we're not moving all over the place. 
Multiple uh, touches, yeah. There's still probably some things we could do better, but, uh, you know, we, we tried to just use our own experience to, to put it together. Um, what has been the most complex part of that space planning to, to figure this out? It's massive pieces of equipment all over the place, and I'm sure, you know, you need clearances to certain things from here to there, or uh, access that, you know, makes things difficult, or what, what's kind of been the, the most complex part? Well, even the concrete, the concrete to support the barrels, right? So talk about just how you engineer something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of this equipment is really heavy, especially when it's full. Uh, and so as Mark mentioned, you know, we had to dig up a lot of concrete and put in a really thick, uh, you know, 18 plus inch thick double reinforced uh, foundations for all this. So that's been pretty, pretty involved. Uh, we're in the process of, we're going to put in a, a grain silo, which wow. when full weighs almost 40,000 pounds. Oh my God. And so the, uh, the engineering on that is going to require us to dig uh, 10 foot deep, 36 inch diameter holes filled with concrete and rebar for each of the feet of the uh, silo tank. So Duke, I'm in residential real estate development. Tell me about the entitlement process or the permitting process to do something along those lines. Well, we've, we've been through the permitting process many times. <laughs> uh, it helps to have an architect that deals with the city that knows uh, their requirements. You just have to be patient. Uh, the engineers usually over-engineer everything, in my mind. And you can challenge it, and it'll take even longer. Or you just go with it and get the job done, pay your permit fees, pay the contractors, and do the job. So, um, so with talking about the space planning again, um, so you guys have this tasting room that we're all in right now. How... When you first kind of opened up, you had this area that's in front of us, and you have, what were they, Michelle? Ten-gallon? Ten-barrel. Ten-barrel tanks. The ten-barrel system. Yeah, ten-barrel system. There we go. Uh, so we have the ten-barrel system uh, in front of us, and to the side, you have basically the tasting room where everybody's drinking, watching TV. How did, how did that whole process um, of developing it um, come to you guys and and was there difficulty of where to put certain things? How did you kind of plan it out or which which took which took precedent for you? Well, so our entire concept when we first started this place was to build out something that we'd want to hang out at like what we would enjoy being at we we're close family we'd go out on the weekends and hang out at the bar after work whatever so that was our goal we wanted to have enough space allocated for to do efficient brewing to be able to fit the tanks we needed but the maximum amount of space allowed for the tasting room because that was where people would come in and enjoy themselves. If we only had 400 square feet of space for the tasting room, you're gonna pack 20 people in here and that's all we're gonna have. I mean, we have so many neighborhoods closed, so many people walk over here with their kids, their dogs. We needed the maximum allowable space, which based on the square footage we have and the city permits, it's uh, our max capacity in here is 76 people, uh, which, the reason for expanding, which is why we have the second tasting room that you guys saw over here, which can fit another 76 people, so on and so forth. But that was our goal, was to create the maximum allowable space for people to be in here to enjoy themselves and hang out. 
How do you guys utilize outdoor space? Like I imagine during the weekends, like Saturdays, Sundays, you probably have Unfortunately, food trucks. we can't yeah. really. Well, okay. in terms of alcohol, we can't utilize the outdoor space. We do have a food truck typically right out back, so we kind of put the signs up, don't bring your beer outside of the warehouse. Um, okay. It's the area we're in, since we're surrounded by a parking lot, we can't zone off the parking lot for any outdoor seating. Uh, we do have the ability to once a quarter do uh, some kind of an outdoor event, just get permitting for something. We, we do it typically every year for our anniversary. We pull permits to close the entire back parking lot uh, where we can have outdoor bars, people take their alcohol outside. But again, it's dealing with the special city, the HPPD, yeah, it's yeah. special events only. It's not something we can do all the Fire time. Fire department, exactly. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. you do have the role of garages, so that helps, right? It kind of creates sort of an space. indoor, outdoor environment. Grace the feeling for it, definitely. Yeah. I think you know, an interesting piece of the whole planning process comes down to parking yep. you know parking is king yeah. so the size of your tasting room is limited by the amount of parking you have yep. so even if we could get our liquor license to allow us to use outdoors the, the city wouldn't allow us because yeah. we don't have enough parking yeah <laughs> so it's, it's you're kind of caught in the middle of that so it's funny too because you're talking warehouse space versus occupied space and yet you still have to have all these you know parking spaces for it i mean it's unreal how how strict it is to be able to do that yeah, and even well, when you're talking about having your event outside now you're talking about parking space to occupied space and all those other kind of things yeah, they, they there's all these different ratios so if we were just using storage here we'd have to have one parking space for every thousand square right. feet Yep. In a tasting room, you have to have a parking space for every 100 square feet. Right. So it gets really challenging when there's only so many spaces. When in reality, everyone should be doing Uber or yeah, Lyft, right? right? But, <laughs> and that's a good point. But, you know, today's uh, city regulations are not, not quite they were written a long yet. time ago. Yeah. 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 So no, that's for sure. kind of on that note, um, what societal changes have you guys seen that have affected what you do, your industry? Is there anything that um, that has sparked a trend or changed the way that you guys do business? Well, I think the whole uh, trend that created the uh, craft brewing industry to begin with was a societal trend where people were not doing what their parents and grandparents did, which was drinking Budweiser and <laughs> Coors. They yeah. were looking for something different. Yeah. Uh, I think the whole Uber and Lyft thing has changed the way things work as well. Uh, especially in today's you know world with such a focus on being responsible mm -hmm. uh, that's been a big factor and thankfully for us because without that I, I think our business would be impacted so today. positive oh yeah, yeah for sure so Duke before your son was home brewing in the garage right is that correct yes what was your beer of choice I mean you you uh, grew that's up embarrassing yeah Miller Lite <laughs> Miller Lite okay all right so, so your son. So let's kind of go back to just how Four Sons sort of came about, right? So, so your son starts brewing in your garage. Is that accurate? Yeah, we bought him a kit uh, when he was 20, so he wasn't just, even legal age yet. But uh, <laughs> hey, you guys are hockey fans in Canada. It's 18. We're good to go. And he made some beer and gave it to all of us, and it was absolutely terrible. Oh, oh, it was terrible. Yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> like put it in the back of the refrigerator for. A year and then throw it away. Terrible. But he was proud of it, right? Yeah, we, we told him it was okay. But. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, so of the beers that you have, uh, what is your favorite beer that you brew? Your turn. Uh, right now it's going to be our dry hop lager. There's, 
Yeah, it, for anyone who's a craft beer fan out there, there's so many different trends that go in this industry. It's, it's so many different. Lately, it's been the hazy beers, the IPAs, things like that, but I can't beat a good lager, a good crisp lager. I'm down for it every day. I agree with that. I have to be honest, I really don't like IPAs. <laughs> but any other beer beside an IPA, like, feed it to me. Have you guys experimented with something that just didn't really work out? Some some crazy combination that, that you thought of? And what what comes to mind for that one? Oh, yeah. yeah we, did, uh, we did one that was a Grazer, a really smoky, smoky beer that I absolutely hated. <laughs> the only person in the world that liked it was that guy right there, Terry. <laughs> one of our... Uh, you got a smug smart on his face right yeah. now? Yeah. <laughs> I think Terry really liked it. But you know, I mean, there's some, some beers that have a wide audience and some that have a really narrow audience. And, uh, you know, you got to figure out how that works over time. And if that narrow audience makes sense to try and cater to them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's we experiment and usually uh, it turns out okay. But every now and then... You know, you have a dud, and if, if you don't, you're not you're not trying enough different things. Dud for the market, or you go and you finally taste the product, and you're like, nah, we're not even bringing this one out. <laughs> uh, we have done that, okay. not even roll it out. Usually, uh, we'll roll it out. I don't like everything, but I don't have to. Right. You know, you you can't just do what you like. Right, sure. People have different tastes. That's probably pretty hard, actually. Right, as you guys are going through the process, if it's something that you don't like, saying, okay, maybe this has some kind of gas for. A certain portion of the market, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, you, you, some of our salespeople go to all the different bars and stuff. And for example, maybe they'll bring in a, a sour beer, and the the beer buyer will say, "Oh, I don't like sour beers." Well, what about your buyer? Yeah, <laughs> you, you've got to think beyond that and what what the trends are. Uh, right now, out in Tennessee, we distribute in Tennessee, and the the sour wave has just recently gotten there. So sour beers are just going crazy, kind of like it was a year ago here. I mean, they're still popular here, but not like they were when it first started. Very so, cool. Uh, where are you guys distributing again? We currently distribute uh, all of Southern California, Colorado, Arizona, Tennessee, and Utah. Okay. And um, in California, what's your biggest outlet of, uh, of, of your beer? Is it a stadium? Is it a um, the tap room? Park? <laughs> the tap room here. Okay. There's, it's really hard to define outside of that what our biggest outlet is. It's there's nothing huge. For, we we got into Dodger Stadium this season, wow, this past season, which is great for our lager, but it's still not something huge. It's like you go into a stadium. We're not Bud Light. They're serving that everywhere. Right. Why Bud Light? That is just nah. you know that's just a travesty. <laughs> honestly, like oh. I mean, I'm with you, but Miller Lite is like leaps and bounds ahead of, of Bud Light, right? Why are you Can, looking at are me? Are we in agreement? Like, like, are we in agreement? Can we be in agreement? Can I'm just going to drink Corona. Like, I don't know. <laughs> no. Oh, my Lord. I'm not a Miller Lite fan. They have a big big marketing budget. That helps. Yeah, that's big time. Yeah, they drown everything. Have you everything. seen the Bud Light signs at those stadiums? They're pretty They're big. Massive. They are pretty big. Yeah, massive. And I'm sure there's contracts. rolling up too, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So from a business operations standpoint, is the board of directors, so to speak, the family? Absolutely, okay. yes. We have uh, regular family meetings, pretty much business, any... Like business-focused meetings? Yes, okay. yeah. Pretty much any significant decision is a family decision. Okay. 
It's not like me or Devin. We, we, we all collaborate and talk about what's the best thing to do. Kind of on that collaboration, if I can, I heard you're doing ops, right? Yeah. So what if, if it's broken up, obviously you guys kind of get final decision on your own, but the other three, like what are, how do, what are the responsibilities broken up in that regard? Jason well, is an operations guy. That's right. question. Total operations guy. I mean, we so. each have our own area. Like you said, any big decisions, we go together on them. Uh, Derek, our head brewer, he, he decides anything when it comes to beer. What he's going to brew, uh, what styles he's going to do, when he's going to do it, how much he's going to do of it. It all comes down to him. He obviously uses the, uh, the sales data we have to help figure out what he Mold needs to do and win okay. but then he's going to run what he wants to do you know and like from my aspect I kind of from the operations side like I help with a lot of different things I work all of our distributor relationships and our sales team so when it comes to deciding like what beers we're going to roll out to distributors or what we're going to focus on for our sales team things like that that's a decision I can just make on my own and, and decide like what's the best for the company and anything legal or operational like my dad will make the decision on that but there's a lot of big decisions that have to be made on a weekly basis on deciding the future of our company and it's best to have a team team mind on that one and all give our own input on it so you guys have sort of like you mentioned that team kind of input but there's a sole person that kind of yeah, but Does I think generally we, we usually come to an agreement, okay. like a, a, buying a new piece of equipment or something, you know, right. an investment decision. We will normally talk about that and say, hey, is this worth it? Are we going to get our money back? You know? Yeah, so another way to put, you are your own board of directors. Yes, we have, we have no outside investors, Good no other person that has any influence or control. So it's just us, guys. nobody to answer to. That's awesome. So the space of microbreweries is pretty saturated. Do you agree? Extremely. Extremely saturated. So how do you differentiate yourself from your competitors? I mean, I think in Huntington Beach, maybe there's there's fewer breweries, microbreweries, right? There was. There was. Okay. Okay. There was. <laughs> That's a nice, say, nice way of but saying it. It's super saturated But you look at now, Anaheim, right? and the city of Anaheim's passed ordinance now that really support kind of the whole brewery movement or you take a market like San Diego and San Diego is all about the breweries or you take a market that you guys are distributing in which is Colorado Colorado has a ton of breweries how do you differentiate yourself how do you compete against your competitors that I mean that's the question we ask ourselves every single day we, we have to get together all the time to try to figure out how we're gonna make ourselves stand out from the rest because with new breweries, there's new breweries opening up every single day in Southern California alone, let alone every other market we distribute in. And there's only enough shelf space for a certain amount of breweries. I mean, there's a bar has 12 taps. You know, they're not going to have more. And there's if there's hundreds and hundreds of breweries. There's I think last heard I heard there was like 200 and something breweries in San Diego County alone. So how do you compete against that? We haven't figured out what the answer is. Our our biggest thing is we just try to straight stay true to what we started as, which was family-owned, family-operated, we try to make a beer that we think will appeal to everyone, not just the craft beer people. Uh, we want everyone to enjoy our beer, and we've always, from day one, used all-natural, real ingredients on all of our beers, which we think kind of sets us apart. Uh, a lot of labels you'll read on a beer says brewed using uh, or extracts or natural flavoring, things like that. We don't do that. We use 300 pounds of coconut for every batch that we have to brew of our coconut amber. We use fresh blood oranges for our blood orange IPA costs a lot more, but we think it makes a better product. And if that 
differentiates ourselves from the competition, then that's our goal. But in the end, we're going to do whatever we think is right for our company and what we were founded on and stay true to that. So your brewery is located in an industrial park, I think, kind of, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our podcast is all about space. So talk about the consideration for being an industrial park versus finding a standalone building that had the outdoor space that you might have been able to have more of kind of a cornhole or, you know, an opportunity to sit outside and bask in the sunlight sort of environment. Yeah, I think, uh, well, an industrial space is attractive for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's generally going to be less expensive than a retail area. Um, You're also going to, in general, have much more uh, vertical space. As you can see, we have 23-foot tall ceilings. Yeah, that makes a difference for sure. Versus, you know, a lot of more retail-type spaces are going to have, you know, 10, 12, 14-foot ceilings. Really limits, and and as we talked about earlier, space is critical in this business. So you saw in some of our areas, we have 23-foot tall ceilings, and we have stuff piled 20 feet tall, you (laughs) know. Uh, So the vertical space really makes a huge difference. Plus, I think it's a it gives it a different atmosphere in this industrial park with the roll-up doors and everything. Granted, you could go do a similar thing in a you know a brew pub type setting in a strip mall or that type of uh, environment, but uh, it's going to be more expensive. It's going to be tighter space, and it's going to be a lot uh, more challenges, I think, than what we have here. I think it blends with the atmosphere a lot better too, which you guys are trying to provide. Kind of that space, here's what's going on, it's a special thing we're creating, you can kind of see behind the scenes and, and do all that as well. Yeah, right. I mean, you feel like you're in part the factory. You're right? part of it, you really buy in, yeah. So, Duke, what's, uh, and Devin, what's the next step for Four Sons? What, what do you guys have on the docket that, that you can discuss that's not a top secret I mean our, our focus right now we as you saw we built a pretty big production facility big big for us yeah and uh, we're really not uh, grown into that yet we're only using maybe a quarter of it so our focus right now is continue to uh, fill up the tap room we have our barrel room next door which is a recent thing so that's kind of a new uh, endeavor for us but beyond that it's to drive additional distribution not only in the states we're in, but eventually to move to some other states. Because uh, at the end of the day, you need to be using, maximizing, you know, the facility that we have, yeah. the investment that we have, not a quarter of it. We need to be using, you know, 100% of it. Yeah. And I don't think we mentioned here in this interview, but the barrel room is also for events. Uh, you guys rent that space out for events as well, right? Yeah, right. Uh, we use it uh, so it's a, almost a mirror image of this tap room, and we use it for overflow. Uh, but recently, we started opening it on Friday and Saturday nights and offering some of our barrel-age beers that we've been working on for essentially since we started. Uh, so we are rolling those out periodically. And then, yeah, we have uh, maybe three or four events a month in there, private events, birthdays and anniversaries, wedding receptions, that type of thing. So it's pretty busy space for us. And one one last question for for each of you, or whoever wants to answer it. Uh, What's one thing that uh, brewers, developers, architects, designers, anybody that's going into this developing a brewery space, 
what's one thing that they can um, that they should consider or think about when they're laying out that space? Uh, the budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what about the budget? <laughs> Whatever you think is going to cost, you're way off. It's going to be way, way more. Yeah. I can guarantee it. Is that a result of being in a location like Huntington Beach? I mean, if you went somewhere like La Habra or Brea or, I don't know, pick an inland I mean, they, city. We knew what we were getting into. If you're going to go to a different city, the... Maybe the space you're going to get into is going to be cheaper, but everything you do inside of that space, the build out, that's going to be the same. I mean, I always tell people whenever they're doing a house or doing anything like that, add like time wise, another 20%, budget, another 20%. Is that roughly in that area, or are you saying it's even beyond that? Yeah, I'd say beyond that. No kidding. Honestly, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe if you've done it 10 times, you might know, but uh, consider with Craft Brewery, their barriers to entry are somewhat low. So you've got people that really have no business experience say I'm going to open a brewery and I think I need you know $50,000 and nope. you've not done this before <laughs> guess again no it's a, it's a different answer so is four sons all about Huntington Beach I mean is that part of who you are oh for sure yeah, yeah. we all live in Huntington Beach we all live within two miles of this brewery as I love a that fact. So, it's awesome yeah and as we, does my father-in-law as we're involved you. in the community we support the community we donate stuff we, we're we're donating awesome. every week you know three four awesome. different times okay guys well thank you very much again hold on, for having hold on. most important what? thing i got a couple buddies that really like supporting this place we coach youth hockey and stuff <laughs> like that so they're all fired up when i told them we we're here and they're all kings fans so go oh, kings go oh yeah right. even though we're rough this start, year but go start kings winning go. a couple <laughs> games guys oh, gosh, really. and i have to say you asked what my favorite episode was well this is my favorite episode because i have a flight of beer in front of me hello <laughs> <laughs> That should be a requirement. <laughs> so thank you again, guys, for, for post, first hosting us and secondly for sitting down with us and doing this interview. Um, thank you again. And we are going to take another break while we get set up and do uh, beer tasting and trivia. So put your thinking caps on, guys. We got some questions for you. And we're back. All right, guys. So we have uh, Terry who's joined us to sit down for this beer tasting that we're going to do really quick. Again, Four Sons Brewing. Check them out, foursonsbrewing.com. And uh, Terry, can you let us know what we have in front of us now? Before Terry lets us know, what, can I just interject? Yes. So I actually, I actually drink a lot of beer. I go and hang out at a lot of breweries. My wife is here. Do we not go to a lot of breweries? We go to a lot of breweries. You guys actually have really, really good beer. Well, thank you. And I live <laughs> in Newport, and I've never, I've never been here. This is my first time ever to Four Sons, and will I've, you come back? I will come back. <laughs> I'm, I'm, my father-in-law lives around the corner. He comes all the time, apparently. Learned that last night. I didn't know. But no, honestly, your beer is actually very, very, very good. 
We try. <laughs> so Terry, uh, so what do you do here, real quick, at uh, at Four Cents? Uh, I kind of work in the tap room. I pour beer and uh, interject with the employees and whatnot. And, you know, put a smile on my face every day that I'm here. Yeah. You know. This is a great job. How long have you been here? Uh, almost since the beginning when we opened. So oh, wow. I started in uh, April of 2015. We opened obviously in September of 2014. Okay. So I've been here almost since the beginning. I knew the family before they even opened the brewery. Uh, my wife introduced me to Devin, who became really good friends with me. And I don't know. The rest is, as they say, history. Eh? Yeah. Um, so, so what do we have here in front of us now? Uh, the first beer is called uh, the Daily Drinking Beer. We uh, abbreviate it DDB. Uh, it's a 4.7 dry hop lager. Um, so it uh, has a really, really light, crisp flavor to it. Um, the hops are very subtle. Um, yeah, so it's uh, basically a, a super good summer beer. You can drink it, you know, by the pool. And oh yeah, that's good. Really like. <laughs> so, uh, so while we finish enjoying these, I'm gonna pepper in some uh, trivia questions for you guys, and for for anyone that's listening here in in the uh, in the shop or in the uh, Four Sons. So let's start. Question one: These are all beer or architecture, building, industry related. Stop looking at the answers. <laughs> I can't actually see them. I'm literally blind. So, number one, beer is the second most popular beverage in the world. What is the first? The options are A, tea, B, milk, C, water, D, soda, E, trick trick question, beer is really the first. Tea. 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 Oh, tea, yeah. I thought you meant the letter T. A, as in T. Correct. So I said it first, I win. No, you spoke out of turn. You lose. I usually do speak out of turn. <laughs> okay, so let, let's go to the next beer. Uh, the next beer is uh, called Vacation. It's a uh, session ale with pineapple in it. Um, this past summer, we collaborated with the Dirty Heads, the uh, band from Huntington Beach. Oh, yeah. Um, and they... Got with our brewer and uh, all the four sons and decided to make a beer together and release it in uh, cans and kind of distribute it across the country. And uh, they've been taking it on tour with them. And it's a really good, light flavored beer. The pineapple is very, very subtle. Very subtle. Oh. I like that a lot. I, yeah, just, I actually pick up on the pineapple a lot. Yeah. Really? No, subtle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it comes in the back of the mouth a lot. Uh, so it's a 5% beer, so you can actually have more than one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you guys want to still finish, if you want to finish that one. Uh, next question. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like backwash at this point. <laughs> uh, say, your, uh, say your first name to, to, your name is your buzzer. All right. So we'll go number two. Which topic did we not cover this year? Some of these questions are also about our year of podcasting. Which topic did we not cover this year? A, hotels. B, stadiums. C, 
prisons, D, fitness gyms, E, schools. Your name is your buzzer. Jason, that's a quick, that's a trick question. We did all those. No, there's two that we did not do. There's only one that we did not do. Schools. We did schools. Listeners are... uh, We did gyms. We did gyms. Schools. Michelle. Michelle. Gyms. You guys are all... You guys are all wrong. Hotels. Hospitals. Hotels. We did all those. Or did we talk about them as topics? (laughs) We did prisons. We did prisons. We did not... We did not do stadiums. What? Oh, that's right. <laughs> Crap. Really? We, we ended up replacing stadiums with the graffiti episode. And just in, since nobody else can see, I licked Michelle's hand because she covered my face. <laughs> I was in Thailand when you did the graffiti episode, so... I'm no shame. <laughs> like I wasn't yeah. here. I'm just saying. Okay, next beer. Uh, the next beer is Stop called The Land of Opportunity. <laughs> it's a blood orange IPA. We use actual real blood oranges in the beer. So the citrus flavor is very, very soft. It uh, doesn't come through very strong, but it's still there. Um, so it's a traditional West Coast IPA that uh, is one of our most popular beers. So you can find this beer in Costco and grocery stores across Southern California. Um, in Costco, seriously? Yeah. I mean, that's like hard to get into though. Oh yeah. That's impressive. We're there our first year, so... No kidding. So I'm not an IPA girl. I don't like them. I'm sorry. I think... But, (laughs) but, there's a but, there's a but. I can appreciate a good IPA, and that's a good IPA. Well, thank you. I think that's my favorite one so far. Okay, next question. Let's see who's been paying attention. I'm out. I think we, I think we covered all of these. Name the four sons of Four Sons Brewing. Terry? Devin, Derek. (laughs) Drew? Drew? Erica? Duke! No. Dwayne. Dustin. Dustin. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so... For the for the listeners That's at home, cheating, by the way. Devin, well Drew, Dwayne, and Dustin, so, and Derek. So the listeners uh, at home. Is Dwayne spelled wrong up there, by the way? Duke is, is the father. Don is the mother. So D-A-U-N-E, the, So for the listeners Don. at home, oh, I did not realize there are stockings for Christmas above my head, with all of the kit. Well, the entire family so and employees' names. Excuse me. What I meant to say is Devin, Drew, Dustin, and Derek Doff. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So they're known as a D family. So. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> okay. Let's go with the last beer. The uh, last beer is called Nightmare on Gothard Street. It's a chocolate coffee stout. Um, it's a pretty traditional stout. We added some flavors in there, coffee and chocolate in particular. And it's super roasty. It's real malty. Uh, traditional stout. And it goes down smooth in the winter. Love it. Really, really good. Oh, that's chocolatey. It's fantastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is everything that I want it to be. I'll take the rest. I don't think Thank I've ever you. Like so that. actually, there's a shout out in Huntington Beach to 25 degrees. They actually have this beer on uh, nitro, so it has a consistency of a Guinness. So it comes out nice and smooth and creamy. Uh, small bubbles. All that. Cool. It's really good. 
Congratulations. Thank you. Okay. I like I like that one. Let's go. Uh, just one one you more. You would, you pineapple. Let's go. Another question for you. Which presidential candidate promised to end prohibition? A. Bush. B. Adams. C. Lincoln. D. FDR. E. Kennedy. FDR. Jason, FDR. Adams. Jason got it first, and he was right. High five over here. FDR. Not you. <laughs> so Jason takes that. It's no need to... Uh, no cheating whatsoever. To Lucky go, guess. To go on to another question. Thank you, Terry, for doing this. Uh, these are amazing beers. we got a few more to finish, but... Um... Jenga. <laughs> well, is that what they're doing over there? Jenga. That or somebody Jenga. had a paddle, one or the other. So, so we got yeah, it. we have some uh, brewery games, so that's giant Jenga that you heard in the background. Those like the two-by-four blocks, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. those ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's rad. Uh, so thank you again, Terry, for doing this. Um, really appreciate it. And uh, do you, as we wrap up, one year, guys. Any, uh, any last parting words before we sign off? This is our last episode of 2018. No, I think we should do more on-location stuff. This is kind of fun. You're welcome. <laughs> wow. You can always come back here. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good, man. We're going to take you up on that. Cool. Okay. New favorite episode? Thank you. Four Sons Brewery. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, if you have any questions, uh, any comments, want to reach out to us for anything at all, hello at spacespodcast.com or anywhere on social media at spacespodcast.com. Again, this is the last episode of 2018 and year one. It's been a great start. It's been a great start. But we... But we are looking to make this even bigger and better next year. So we are going to take a little break to uh, reflect and and try and figure out how we can make this thing better. Uh, So we'll keep you posted on the release of Season 2. And to get the inside scoop on that, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Spaces Podcast. Um, Also follow Four Sons Brewery. Thank you again, guys, for doing this. Uh, And to thank you to all the listeners for spending some time with us tonight and this year. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it and forward the link to to a friend. Your support is the only way that this show grows. And if you just stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Also check out spacespodcast.com under the listen tab for photos and notes on things we talked about today. And we will see you next year. So with all that said, if you're catching up, you got to wait till we send out the next season. And if you're listening, uh, yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas. <laughs> happy Hanukkah. Happy beers. Kwanzaa. Happy holidays. Have, have happy a, New Year. Have a good holiday break. We'll see you next year. Thanks. See ya.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.